Well, well, well. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to all of you out there. It is the one and only V, the Grill Economist, coming to you live on this edition of Multipolar Reality with the one and only, the incomparable brain trust himself, Matthew Errett. And you can find Matthew over at risingtidefoundation.org, rising risingtidefoundation.net, and canadianpatriot.org, canadianpatriot.org, as well as the Substack, substack.com forward slash Matthew Errett. With that out of the way, Matthew, good morning, good evening, man. I mean, good afternoon, buddy. How are you doing? Good afternoon and good evening for any and good morning for those those in different parts of the world. I'm doing good. Fantastic, man. It's been a it's been a minute since I had you on. Uh, we we were both busy. Um, what where do you want to start, man? There's so many things happening, and I'm gonna wait for you to get your drink. I hope is that a hot beverage? It's a hot beverage. It's yeah. not hot water, is it? No, not this time. No, good, I, good. I, I I went back to more manly material. Uh, it's a like it's a coffee. double espresso. Yeah. Ah, yes, nothing like a delicious double espresso. He's fired up, folks. He's on rocket fuel. Uh, Matthew was on with our boys, Alex and Alex, over at the Duran. If you missed it, go to the Duran on YouTube and go check it out. Amazing, amazing interview. So with that being said, Matthew, where do you want to start, brother? Oh, man, there's there's uh, a number of places to begin, I guess. And um, I, it's difficult to say, but I would say the, the current um, insanity in the Middle East, obviously, all of our discussions are necessarily going to be revolving to some in some direction around the arsonists, the fires that have been erupting in the Middle East, which could easily spread beyond that region into a more global general conflagration. So I figured we'll uh, discuss some of the current events uh, dealing with uh, idiots putting gasoline onto that fire that could otherwise be, be put out very, I won't say easily, but it is not as complex as some would have would would like to believe. Um, and, you know, the, there was recently, I think the, the recent vote uh, in Congress has been insane. A convergence of people on the left and the right, Democrats, Republicans, who can agree on nothing except war. Um, that's important to keep in mind. A near unanimous support for uh, giving unconditional support to Israel. Um, militarily speaking, um, there is an interesting blockage of uh, from the, the House you know, which has a new leader, Johnson, um, Mike Johnson, who has put forth a a block to assist Ukraine in their desired unlimited blank check that they've been enjoying for a long time in their in their meat grinder. And uh, there's an interesting little twist, of course, where you know Johnson and his colleagues, who are who are you know uh, interesting interesting in the sense that they don't fit the typical neocon technocratic modality but they're still they have big big insane spots nonetheless but they did make the point that their the financial support to israel is going to come from the irs budget which I, I i get a little i get a little chuckle from but despite all of that you have democrats republicans all agreeing to this there's only 10 10 no votes of which thomas massey was the most i think principled of all of them and consistent as uh, the most principled republican congressman uh over the last few years and a few abstaining, I think six or so people abstained, um, saying I'm present, but I don't want to vote. Uh, <laughs> but very uh, courageous. Yeah, so courageous, right? But it's insane. I mean, because you look at what's going on, it's very well understood by the world community that uh, that this is a slaughterhouse of innocence. Um, the UN resolution, the UN just re- voted 
uh, with a vast majority of nations voting for a ceasefire, which would also involve the release of all Israeli hostages who could be released on a dime if simply it wasn't voted against by the United States, by Israel, and a few other countries in the NATO cage who said, no, we don't want a ceasefire. We don't want to release the hostages. Why? And Benjamin Netanyahu is coming out, living up to his name as a Yahoo, saying that, uh, you know, any any ceasefire is equivalent to um, admission that Hamas has defeated us? Like, what is this? Um, you already... It, Anyway, I'm not even going to get into that. But it's understood by even those Israelis who are participating with Netanyahu in the bombing campaigns that they're not even killing, by and large, Hamas uh, fighters who are underground. They're in the tunnel system that's been built up over decades and decades and decades. They know that they're killing civilians, but they're doing it anyway. Well, you heard of that that leaked uh, Israeli memorandum that was top secret. Whereas some, uh, it it was a a member of the Israeli uh, defense ministry that literally said... Yeah, we don't care about civilians. The goal here is to create a refugee crisis, have the two and a half million Palestinians, the majority of them, be absorbed by Europe in a refugee crisis. And then we go over and take the take the land and get access to those valuable LNG gas deposits that's right off the coast of Gaza. I mean, this is just insidious. The world sees it for what it is. The lunatic nut jobs that run the West obviously are just still talking about terrorism and good guy versus bad guy. And, oh, my God, democracy, democracy. We have to defend democracy. Oh, man, it's such a broken record. It's pathetic. Well, one thing as well, this goes back to the – I've been bringing this up a lot because I don't think people are properly paying this the due that it deserves. But the Clean Break Doctrine written by the neocons as a white paper back in 1996 is so important because it lays out exactly what they did and what they're doing now which was written for Benjamin Netanyahu when he became, when he got his first try at the uh, prime ministership of Israel over the dead body of Yitzhak Rabin, the peacemaker who had been working with Arafat to create the Oslo Accords and the two state solution, restoring the pre 1967 borders. Cause I mean, if if anybody looks, I think at this point, everyone's done their homework, but you look at the the borders of what, what is today's Palestine since 1967, it's not, there's nothing there. It's like a whole bunch of like, what a hundred different little micro regions controlled in in cages with choke checkpoints and curfews and um i mean it, it's it's not it's 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 illegal what's happening there as an occupation it is it is apartheid because i mean the, the the taps of fresh water of electricity gas food uh can be turned on or off by those uh very occupiers who literally created an inside job back in 1967 and this was admitted i mean i i've just been doing a little bit of research i wrote down a few quotes for those who don't know, the, like a lo- everything that there's there's many points of fallacy in our history. Um, you could say in many ways, the very creation, the geopolitical creation itself of Zion as a homeland of the Jews physically under the control and directorship of Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Office, uh, Lord Milner, Lord, Lord Lloyd George back in 1917, who were the same figures orchestrating World War One. They were the same anti-Semites who despised the Jews, who wanted the world to be without Jews. They wanted them exterminated. They were supportive of Hitler, of eugenics, of fascism. And they were the ones who were working so diligently to provide a homeland for the Jews to get to convince the international network of Jews around the world to go into the desert in a volatile region that could be lit on fire. So you could say that that whole thing had a a lot of fallacies. But despite that, there have been 
peacemakers amongst the Jewish community who have emerged over time to try to find brotherhood and peace, uh, peaceful relations with their Arab neighbors. Um, there's a lot of that, but a big inflection point that really spiraled everything downward into hell was the 1967 six day war, which uh, just scratching on the surface of this thing, there, there have been high level people, the chief of logistics command for the general staff of Israel in 1967, this guy, uh, Mitwahu, uh, Pillet, I wrote down his quote. He said the thesis, according to which the danger of genocide hung over us in June, 1967, and according to which Israel was fighting for her very physical survival was nothing more than a bluff which was born and bred after the war. So that story that Jews had to do a preventative counterstrike uh, or strike against Egyptian and Syrian and Jordanian uh, military, destroying their 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 armies uh, be before they could be attacked, was a created myth after this war. That then involves Israel then occupying a big chunk of Transjordan, big chunk of Israel, all of Palestine that they never gave back a big chunk of that and created the current climate of animosity and, and eye for an eye feelings. But you also had another guy, Mordecai Bentov, um, one of the founders of uh, Israeli independence, of the, the Israeli uh, constitution, who said he lived through this and in 18, uh, 1971, he said this whole story about the threat of extermination was totally contrived, then elaborated upon a posteriori to justify the annexation of new Arab territories. These are high level people who are participating on the ground, on the inside, who admitted and, you know, there, there's there's even CIA analysts who are working with Lyndon Johnson trying to convince him that, no, there's no evidence that Nasser uh, at the time, the head of Egypt was planning an attack or anybody. Um, and none of this was listened to. The ambassador of the United States to Israel in Tel Aviv at the time when the signs were going off in June 1967 uh, gave a, a testimony 20 years later saying, yeah, I was there on the ground. And when I was scared because we were told, you know, we're about to be attacked, there's a war. Uh, and I asked my uh, my colleague who was a member of the the uh, Israeli government if we should go underground to bunkers. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. This is just for show. And then that information would have been useful, right, at the time. The other thing is that uh, an American ship, a signal ship off the coast of Israel, was attacked and destroyed by Israel. Dozens and dozens of American soldiers were killed yeah, at that time. Liberty. The U.S.'s liberty. So the whole thing has been built. But yet... It's like 9-11. It's one of these sacred stories. You, it, 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 This trauma reinforced the we are the persecuted people that everyone wants to kill identity that's been enforced into the Jewish population throughout the Holocaust, the the, the, the buildup even before that, um, that you're, you're an identity of victims. And as we see with the BLM movement of the anti, like the, the, as soon as you get a whole cultural mo uh, grouping into a victim state, it, it, vacillates very easily to the opposing violence prone revanchist state that we have to seek revenge for the misdeeds of the past of the transgressors against us we see it as well with the germans who have all been given a guilt complex by the cia as an occupying force over germany after world war ii who imbued all of these baby boomer germans with the sense that they they all have forthright genes right you're all potential nazi killers all of you by your by your blood and so they built in like a, a shame-based um, victimhood, which results very predictively in Germany acting in its own psychopathic way in more recent years, embracing hardcore um, 
green fascism to sort of repent somehow for the transgressions that they were told is in their blood, in their genetics by CIA run educational reforms in the 1940s and 50s. And now you have like Germany um, lot, losing its marbles and its morality based on this identity of we are, we are this. Uh, same thing for many of those Jews who don't know that this was an inside job. The Yom Kippur War as well. There's classified documents that had, that had I mean, I, I only realized this after October 7th, but even the very Yom, Yom Kippur War appears to have been another inside job in 1973. But the whole thing has created a climate um, where these people like Benjamin Netanyahu um, feel like they're fighting Nazis when in reality they're the ones occupying and destroying the lives of these people. And you, and then they wonder why there's so much hate and fear and anger um, by p groups that emerge with Hamas. But then the question is, well, then why did Israel create Hamas? <laughs> if, if Hamas wants to destroy Israel, why did Israel create Hamas? That's a, a very important question that not enough people are asking either with the help of the Americans. Why? Because they wanted to destroy Yasser Arafat and uh, Yitzhak Rabin's peace orientation for economic development and win-win cooperation in the 1990s that had, was destroyed by Yitzhak's murder. And the clean break doctrine, which is why I've been saying all of this, is clear and people should revisit this because Paul Wolfowitz co uh, commissioned with Rumsfeld and Cheney uh, a, pro a program for Netanyahu in 1996, written by Richard Pearl, leading neocon, that called for a, a strategy for securing the realm of Israel with a new uh, neocon Israel Zion convergence um, that would occur after a Pearl Harbor incident would, would be created. And the point of, in this document, it basically says for number one, four goals. Number one, end Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Authority's political influence. And specifically at the time, Yasser Arafat was the leader of the, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, also set up in 1967. That was the much more reasonable, much more economically development oriented, not so religiously fanatical as, as, as Hamas was, but end Arafat's authority uh, by blaming them for acts of Palestinian terrorism that would be created conveniently by the Israeli created Hamas uh, in the first place, which itself was an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, which itself is the outgrowth and the creation of British intelligence back in the 1920s. Uh, my wife has written a book going through this called The Empire in Which the Black Sun Never, Never Set, chapter uh, 10 and 11, goes through this in great detail. It'll keep you up at night. But number two goal is induce the United States to overthrow Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. This is 1996. Number three is launch a war against Syria after Saddam's regime is disposed of. And number four is follow that up by military action against Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, which would secure the realm, right? Purge effectively or re either reduce the influence of any Arab influence politically, but or purge it completely. Um, so that a greater Israel could be then established, fulfilling God's prophecy in the first place of uh, greater Israel that Jabotinsky, Rabbi Kook, uh, Theodor Herzl, and others, including a bunch of Nazis and anti-Semites around the British high command, were all supportive of. Um, and it wasn't because they loved the Jews <laughs> at the end of the day. It's, it's something else. So these are all very important dynamics that people have to hold in mind when they're visiting, when they're told, pick a side. Are you pro Israel? Are you pro-Palestine? Are you pro-Hamas? Pick a side. And it's like, wait a minute. No, pull pull back. <laughs> pull back and look at some of the, the subtler but important dynamics shaping this whole thing. The major dynamics that are shaping all this because you have people that are swapped up into camps of, of groupthink.
and uh, they're missing the bigger picture, this, the the one hundred thousand foot view of, of of everything that's happening here. Yeah, this is a financial game, and there are Zionists and globalists and neocons, which are all the same monster, so to speak, mm-hmm. who they don't care how many Jews die, they don't care how many Palestinians die, they don't care how many people die, because the end justifies the means. Absolutely, no, it's absolutely that, and uh, you know the. People wonder, like, well, why are all of these Christian Zionists supporting Israel unconditionally? And they're ignorant. It's bad exegesis. Mm. It's bad hermeneutics. And you have an entire swath of uh, of of evangelicals who believe this pre-tribulation nonsense, and uh, they're sold into this idea that you know Israel is some sort of chosen country amongst all of the countries on God's green earth, and that's simply not even biblical. To say the least, number one, the early church fathers never even held that view, number two. So this is something that was created, again, from John Darby onwards. You know, it, it, it was the John Darby pre-tribulation rapture nonsense, who was an occultist, who created the entire pre-tribulation nonsense, right? Yeah. Then you'd see the whole, and then from the, the seeds of the pre-tribulation uh, rapture, and the early "quote unquote" revivals that happened here uh, in in the United States, right, and mm-hmm. and, in, and in the UK, that this this doctrine of replacement theology, this doctrine of 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 Israel coming back into the fore, forefront of something that is so special and so different, and God has a special uh, thing for the land. That is that has what what that has done has completely inoculated the Christians in the United States from having any sort of critical thinking, let alone biblical thinking as to what the hell's going on in in, in the Middle East. What I love about you, V, is you're one of the only people I know who gets this to the degree that you do. Like, you get the importance of the Darbyites, what the hell happened to the Christians, and uh, as as far as, like, these, these rapture... Uh, Christian Zionists who emerged yeah. onto the scene at the end of the 19th century and really became it, this this became became ubiquitous yeah. across almost every branch of Protestantism across the United States and Canada and Britain uh, throughout the 20th century. This is at the heart of the the creation of Pentecostalism, correct? In uh, the early part, like 1902 to 1907. I mean, all of this stuff is so artificial. It's so much the effect of not spiritual or religious considerations, but geopolitical manipulation there's a lot of people are not willing to go there because they've been brainwashed to think that you could separate um uh, theological or religious belief as something compartmentalized and separate from your political um considerations or your historical political considerations and you can't you can't and you could just listen to people like john hagee that that oh my god that 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 fanatic bastard. No, you and he, I just listened to a, a a disgusting sermon that this guy gave with uh, Ted Cruz um, just the other day, saying that to fulfill prophecy, now is the time, the end times. And he's been saying this, by the way, since the nineties. Uh, that it's always 80s. end times. It's always it's always higher always fire br- brimstone. Repent now, make Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior, or else burn in hellfire forever. But that also involves ridiculously supporting every single war yeah. in the Middle East. Remember what Pat Robertson said when he went to the 700 Club and that asshole was still alive. Yeah, uh, We need to assassinate uh, Hugo Chavez. Live on yeah, the air. Live like, on the air. Christian pastor, pastor uh, Pat Robertson. Oh, yeah. 
assassinate Hugo Chavez. God, I pray for these people are sick, man. Well, even sick. now, what are they talking about? They're talking about like he was he was literally advocating for the the bombing of Iran, basically saying only the to be a God-fearing Christian, you have to support the bombing of Iran. Correct. Uh, which is World War Three? Iran has a mutual security pact with Russia and with China, but that's okay. But that's okay because those are Gog. Those, that's, that's that's Gog, Gog right and there. Gog right there. Yeah, the Again. Battle of Megiddo is foresight. Ba- exactly. Bad exegesis. That's why when I talk to Christians, quote unquote, who are involved supporting Ukraine, saying America's fight against Russia via Ukraine is Gog Magog, and there and 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 the Russia is the evil Gog. Has no idea that Christianity is flourishing in Russia. Has no idea of, of, about what Russia is doing that is more biblically or, 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 or pro-human, pro-family based versus the satanic United States, right? Has no idea, but yet it, it, it's like, no, I have to go there because it's Gog and Magog. I'm like, do you understand that's, that's bad exegesis? That's just bad hermit. That's bad doctrine. Like you're believing nonsense. It's not Gog Magog, you know. It's it's incredible to me how how things have happened. I know, I know, and and, and so many of these things, right? Like whether it's it's Benny Hinn or 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 you mentioned Robertson or I mean the whole Moody Bible uh, College, oh, yeah. which is so influential. It's behind so many of these charismatic uh, preachers who are all delivering the same Darbyite spin, and Darby yeah. is. And again, I know we've we've talked about this in the past, and you've no, talked I, about. I this think we your... need to bring it up again. We need to keep hammering this point. It's a poison. It's, it's a... one of those. It's like a shank. It's like a porcupine quill. This whole Darby thing when it kicked off and pre-tribulation rapture, I call it pre-tribulation cra- uh, capture. That's what it is because mm. their minds have been captured, right? Yeah. It's like a porcupine quill. It's dug so deep. Yeah. Into the American psyche, into the lingo. I mean, you got movies like Left Behind. Yeah. Right and all this other bullshit. Unless we go deep and pull that out of the American consciousness and be like, "Yo, that's not what Christianity is." The early church fathers did not believe that. The historical church did not believe that. Why does the modern evangelical church believe this? You people need to have an adult conversation. It, 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 dude, let's attack it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And there, there's so many. Like here, first, let me just say this. I don't know how easy this is. To- to find, but I'm pretty sure people can order this. I have been referring back to this since this whole thing blew up on October 7th. I think this is like the gold standard for intelligence on the Middle East. It's an executive intelligence review special report called Who is Sparking a Religious War in the Middle East from December to the, December 2000. Um, have you ever seen this this document? I've never seen that, man. Okay, I got to find a way. Maybe we can get Harley to uh, mail you a copy or something, but this is gold. It's like, how, how many pages is this? It's like hundred and 170 pages of deep history, uh, epistemological analysis, and I'm pretty sure it's available to be purchased online. If not, I got to find it and make it available. If, if there, are, I'll, I'll ask somebody to see if, if there's like a PF people could purchase. But uh, the, the key is that Darby, and it's so important, John Nelson Darby, godson of Horatio Nelson, high-level British intelligence, you know, Battle of Trafalgar, that John Nelson Darby emerged out of Anglican sects, which itself grew out of a Kabbalistic takeover of Britain itself in the 1520s to 30s that created Rosicrucianism, that convinced 
through this figure of Francesco Zorzi, who was a leading occultist, Kabbalist from Venice, high-level Venetian family, who persuaded uh, Henry VIII, stupid, horny Henry VIII, to go and create his own church so that he could have sex with Anne Boleyn. That guy um, who made the, this new church based on this idea of the the hereditary leader of the church, the king or the queen, as the head, like the pope. Um, that thing created a whole branch of absurdity that uh, permeated all of the colonies of the Commonwealth. It permeated even America itself. The United States has their own Anglican branches all over that were there even before, during, and after the revolution. They never left. They has slightly different name, but were always allied to an Anglo-American special relationship. The the Pilgrim Society, and before that, all of these British-directed fifth columnists in Wall Street, going back to Aaron Burr, were always tied to this branch of religious cultural warfare that overlaps and worked very closely with Jesuitical uh, operations as well that had permeated simultaneously. And keep in mind, the Jesuit order and the Anglican Church were both created in 15, uh, 1534, the same year, both tied to Venetian intelligence, both playing a, a very specific but overlapping role. And just like today, what, what do we have with the Great Reset and this call for a new set of uh, norms, religious beliefs that will replace the outdated Judeo-Christian beliefs after um, a period of trauma can be created shock therapy style onto humanity. You have Prince Charles, now King Charles, who was the person selected to usher in the Great Reset back in June 2020, who's a, the head of the Anglican Church, the greenest, who's, who's, who's basically a massive green zombie, right? Working with Pope Francis, the Jesuit who has taken over the papacy in 2013, who's trying to green Christianity, bring in a bunch of very clearly uh, satanic operatives into high positions of influence within the Catholic Church, within the cardinalship, the bishopric, um, who are converging on things like the... Uh, the Council for Inclusive Capitalism with the Vatican, right, which involves King Charles's operation with the Clean Green Business Council uniting with the uh, the Vatican to create this this new order of capitalism around a green decarbonization agenda, where we restore some imaginary um, idea of Gaia-like Garden of Eden equilibrium of happy no change where humans are naturally without technology or at least technology that reduces our ability to make any changes to ourselves or to the environment with windmills and solar panels. And we're, you know, living with somehow like uh, lions and tigers and bears in some Garden of Eden setting that never existed, but they want to restore this sort of idealized utopic. Only, you know, the, the funny uh, thing is, Matthew. Yeah. The funny thing is only people who are far removed from nature. People who've never been in the woods, people who never camped, people mm. who've never been exposed to the elements of nature, the yeah. dangers of nature, the unpredictability of nature will mm. be so stupid and arrogant to write papers to think that they could bring this thing into harmony. It is proof positive of an extremely uneducated ruling class to make such a decree, a ruling class that is so far divorced from the very reality of the brutality of the natural world, man. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I know. And it, it, you, you, you see certain things like um, the movie uh, The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. I kind of appreciated the, uh, the, 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 the uncomfortable reality, which is that they got this utopian beach on this island with, that they have to sort of share with uh, of, of some narcotics producers and drug cartels. Uh, but they got this agreement where, you know, they'll, they'll live in harmony. 
uh, each sharing the island, right? The drug the drug lords on one side, the the commune on the other side, um, which seems all well and good and perfect, and it's like the the eco anarchist fantasy world. But then the sad reality always comes on, which is that you know you have to go into town to get your canned goods, your your, your everything you need to survive, and in, in a way that doesn't involve you just like living in the mud. Um, it requires civilization in some direction, you know, and, and today as well, like a lot of people who fantasize about living in little, little micro collectives, you know, and having like a, a decent quality of life in little micro collectives, uh, decentralized, like don't, they don't realize that, well, then you have to live with, um, no electricity, no uh, internet, no satellites, none of the things that you kind of are dependent on to just have your lifestyle, your identity, everything. You can't have any of those things. That all can be shut off from you. And so you've got to be prepared to live in a really hardcore lifestyle. The other thing is that these creatures who have created this whole Neo-Malthusian ecological back-to-nature cult around which, which both the oligarchy wants because they want people, they want a, a transhumanist technocratic regime managing things from above, but they want their victims to think on a very local micro level, me first, my community first, and, I, and nothing bigger than that to make them more manageable and more easily divided. Um, but part of that is this idealization of the tribal lifestyle. And that, the, you know, we were told by the this these reforms in anthropological research uh, promoted again by Anglo-American intelligence operations. This is not science that those tribes that we found in low technological levels, whether in Africa or the Americas, is the natural state of these tribal savages. So we have to give off like this weird fake uh, care and concern for them to protect their local, you know, cultural ecosystems and defend them from the big, bad Western polluting technologies, which is where the, you know, the Maury Strong, uh, Kissinger um, appropriate technologies comes from the, the definition that we can allow money that we give to a poor country to be used for appropriate technologies. Though what what that became defined around, defined around is technologies that don't influence or impact their lifestyles or nature in any significant way, like dams, bad hydroelectric dams, um, hydrocarbon power stations, advanced infrastructure, science, bad. But we'll let you build um, a, a, a network of little wells or little windmills. And that will give you little micro credits for that, for those appropriate technologies um, that don't allow you to have an integrated nation or advanced society. But we were told everybody should want that noble savage re restoration because we're all polluted by the corrupting influence of modern technology and the dirty industrial revolution that we're shown these disgusting images of. And look, it's caused global warming and pollution and Captain Planet, you know, like that's, that's something that traumatized a lot of people in our generation as kids or, or influenced us, you know, Captain Planet as this, this thing that idealizes this uh, or that, that sees industry is always evil. Um, to be good and natural and pure means let destroy industry, make sure that we, we live with nature, live with less, eat bugs, don't have an impact. And uh, it's all feudalism. None of that was ever true. Industry came about as a fight to emancipate people from the effects of living under rapacious feudal empires. That's why we have industries, because human beings fought, gave their lives to be able to have access to new discoveries that would be applied in new technologies that would better our lives so that we wouldn't have to do 
grudging, you know, manual labor or child labor for 14 hours a day on plantations just to make subsistence living like we did in the in the feudal times or medieval times. And with new technologies being applied that could do the work of 100 laborers, these 100 laborers are now free to save more of their time doing other more productive things. They could use more of their mind unless they're material brute force like animals you know, physically using backhoes that you're pulling with your body, you can now use the technology of, of animal husbandry or better yet tractors that, uh, you know, it's good. That's a, that came through a fight and the productive system that allowed for the, the creation of urban societies where you could have more people living together at a higher standard of living, higher consumption, but higher production, productive levels, more time for recreational use of their mind, of their hearts, of, of these other things. Um, this came about not because the oligarchy wanted us to have urban industrial civilization, but in spite of that, because you had Benjamin Franklin's, you had Thomas More's, you had Erasmus's, and you had um, Lincoln's who fought and died to create a, a climate that would allow for new type of political technologies because politics and law and government is also a form of technology. And you've got different types of constitution that, that are like blueprints for how a certain machinery of government will work or not work, depending on the fallacies embedded in whatever constitutional system the a creator or a lawgiver wants to make. And if the lawgiver is a tyrant who, who hates human beings and believes that humans should always be ruled over by a ruling class of masters, well, they'll create constitutional systems like we have seen under, you know, the, 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 the Hobbesian architecture of might makes rights Elites are born into master classes. Slaves are born into slave classes. Rights are given to us by a hereditary elite and can be thus taken away. And that's where rights come from, says the anti-humanist. And that's and that's the, the very opposite of what the founding fathers broke away from when they established that, no, all men are created equal. There's not one sovereign, but everybody is sovereign because we're all born with an equal claim to uh, utilize our reason and our conscience with free will, Right each one being unique, but each having access to the ability to use these things and improve upon them together in a way that allows us to become happy, to live our life in a fruitful way, to give something back to the world that we were born into before we die. Like that is where rights come from. We're made in the image of God. Not just like, it's not just one King who is the instrument of God's will on earth as the Anglican church presumes, right? But rather it's, we're all made in the image of God. We're all sovereign, but that means conditionally we have to have access to wisdom and yeah. if you don't have a society of wisdom because they believe in some radical fundamentalist uh interpretation of their sacred text that allows them to support wars forever wars for the sake of some uh, idea of prophecy then all of a sudden you get a herd not a not a democracy but a, a mob which will be always played with like like strings on a violin by social engineers who are chuckling and laughing as we're promoting policies that are going to lead to not only the destruction of all the Jews on the earth, because I mean, right now, by, by supporting unconditionally Israel, what, what are we seeing amongst especially the alternative media community, people who should know better, we're seeing a massive outburst of anti-Semitism, anti, like this, the, the atrocities that are being committed against the Palestinians are awakening every single latent feeling of anti-Semitism that people kind of had the feeling that there's a Jewish conspiracy run by the protocols of Zion all these things are now like going straight to the surface. Yeah. And and Benjamin Netanyahu is doing more of a service 
to the cause of anti-Semitism than Hitler could have done oh as we're supporting God, a policy that's going to lead to all of their extermination because we're supporting World War III. Israel's not going to benefit. This is where the Israeli people are, are protesting against Netanyahu in Israel. But despite that, these pro-Israel Zionists are allowing for something that will not only destroy Israel, but destroy America and their own Christian friends as well. So, yeah, not sovereign people. No, not in the least bit, man. And it, it, it's uh, they are running headlong into into this. It's it's there's no they're there. There's no hey, let's uh, call a ceasefire. No, this is going full tilt, and um, there's going to be a point. There's going to be a I, I, if it doesn't stop, there's going to be a breaking point where this gets out of control. And the and the arrogance here, especially with the Western elites, the opposite elites, these guys are idiots is they think they can manage a crisis. They've never been in real crisis. The current crop of Western elites don't know what crisis is. No. They haven't faced what crisis is because they've been living off the the uh, the fat that was uh that that the that the you know Western oligarchs gained right after World War II. Mm -hmm. They don't know what crisis is. So they're under this false false delusion that they can manage it. They don't understand that crisis the type of crisis that these idiots are calling for is not only uncontrollable, it is vicious. It is absolutely bloody and unpredictable. And this is, and this is, and, and, and look, the, the hubris of the Western elites, I mean, 2022, I, I think since 2020, since the global event of 2020 till now, I think the hubris, incompetence, and stupidity, and short-sightedness of these Western elites has been exposed for the entire world to see, man. I think so, too. And I mean, they haven't lived through it, it, a lot of this has been simply on paper for a long time. Right. It's been the, the this imaginary future state of utopianism. That would be the culmination of what H.G. Wells put forth with his open conspiracy and his new world order. And, um, you know, it, it it's always been very abstract for even the oligarchy, though, this abstract you know, imaginary future has been animating every single moment and decision-making every single step of the way for the past 80 years, especially. Um, now that reality is, uh, like crunch time is happening and theory is, is hitting the ground fast and reality and theory are, are beginning to be tested together at the same time. They're finding that a lot of that stuff that looked really good on paper is not exactly what's happening. And now all of a sudden we do actually have for the first time in a very long time, which we didn't have back in the in the Six Days War. We didn't have it in the Yom Kippur War. We didn't have it in the in the 40s. We didn't have it like with the creation of Israel. We didn't have it with any of the religious wars for the past uh, or wars in the Middle East for the past 80 years. We didn't have a systemic economic breakdown crisis. That did that wasn't the case. The U.S. was still relatively um, strong economically speaking. It wasn't yet a total hollowed out bubble economy. The, the, that wasn't there yet. Today, it's different. We've got a giant bubble where we once had an economy that is erupting at the seams. The supply chains physically are breaking down. Part of this is, is a controlled demolition. Part of it isn't. Um, but part of this is that this is what was created with Henry Kissinger's takeover with the Trilateral Commission in the 1970s. This was, the design was, the idea was to create a bubble that would burst just like the South Sea bubble, just like the tulip bubble, just like every single boom and bust orchestrated by British, by the city of London over the course of the 19th century, 
All of these things are, are designed as economic warfare, always have been, to get stupid people to worship myopically momentary profits at the expense of any future considerations or concept of the general welfare of the people uh, that are going to be destroyed by your stupidity and money-worshipping uh, selfishness. They always get stupid people to support massive liberalization, free trade, um, the destruction of national regulation over the banks, the private financiers. Um, protectionism is always taken down with this introduction of these, these periods of free trade that have like really done a lot of damage throughout America's history. And speculation, unbounded speculation, always grows, creating bubbles that are always able to be popped with those on the inside able to then sell short or sell first before the bubble is popped, uh, creating wealth transfers every step of the way. Again, we saw this with the South Sea bubble being consciously popped in, in 1720. Um, huge wealth transfer then in the consolidation of the British Empire around the Hellfire Club, who initiated this thing with insiders inside of the city of London and the Bank of England. We saw this earlier with the tulip bubble inside of the, the Dutch tulip bubble, right? Insiders then sold early all of their shares of tulips, bought castles, real estate, farmland, and everybody not in the know, not in the inside club, lost everything because they, they poured all of their savings into tulips. It's always the case. This, today is just a slightly more uh, complex expression of the exact same simple game where stupid people destroyed themselves. We forgot how to build things. We now have that shaping, uh, in, a, in a certain sense, a timeline that the oligarchy has to destroy any opposition authority to their ability to control the terms of the new world order that will be brought online with the after a period of pain that's always been planned and built and in, caked into the system. Uh, for a new world economic architecture founded upon depopulation, the incentivization of activities that reduce human impact on nature, you know, things like that. This is what Prince Philip, again, the, the Jesuit takeover, the high-level Jesuit operatives um, have been working with the Rothschilds, with the, the, the Anglican clergy, who are themselves, I think, just a cover for Gnostic occult pagan um, pre-Christian pre sects that reformed or rebranded themselves with the Christian age and have continued on ever since, um, always striving to undo Christianity and restore some, some revived sense of global paganism as Alistair Crowley, uh, Alistair Crowley fought for as Timothy Leary and, um, Julian Huxley called for the creation of a scientific paganism assisted by the deployment and normalization of drugs, psychedelics as a new gateway to spiritual spirituality, the creation of a, a, a redefined set of sacred narratives. That's what the Great Narrative Project is all about from the from Davos, right? You got the, the Great Narrative Project that Klaus Schwab unveiled a year and a half ago, calling for the replacement of old, obsolete, sacred stories embedded in the Abrahamic faiths in favor of a new set of more relevant uh, narratives that will be more conducive to living with less, living in a, in a small world with fewer people eating bugs. So we need new sacred stories. Yeah. The creation of, all, of aliens. All, all things. Oh. All these things that you just mentioned mm -hmm. are things that the lords will used to tell their serfs back in the neo-feudalistic days. All these things. You know, from, from fantastical stories, all these things. The serfs have their own culture. I mean, literally, they they ate their own food. Their food was of less nutritional value than the lords. Hence, the serfs were smaller. It's incredible how it's all just being repackaged by the same cycles, man. Yeah, and you actually have, like, policy documents that have been entertained, like, around Big Think and others about how to uh, 
genetically modify uh, humans to become like 25% smaller with these weird um, statistics introduced scientifically to sure. demonstrate how, ma how many uh, uh, tons of carbon emissions can be saved if we can genetically produce smaller babies, smaller children, yeah. which could also happen not just through a, a bioengineering of, of humans, but also just like you said, a few generations of people just eating bugs and having a low meat intake is yep. going to do the job pretty well too, right? Like yeah. when you walk into an old house made before the night, look the 1700s. at the third world, look, look at Asia, yeah. like 30, 40 years ago. There's a reason why Asians were smaller. Yeah, you know, were, like 30, 40 yeah. years ago, they, they were not living in the best of conditions because of everything that's happened because of, I mean, we Matt, Matt, Matthew and I can go on and on about this, but yeah, that's changed. You go to Asia now, you go, you're like, you know, I'm 5'11", and they're, you know, I, you, you go to Asia, there, there's guys in China walking around 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, so it's a yeah. different world now, man. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's exactly that. They they literally just want to bring back the past. It's 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 like they they want to um to take times of the past that never existed and and make our future based upon a restoration of the past. So it's a complete defiance of natural law and of reason. And again, this is why um I'm very um this is different for a variety of reasons from the past. So I mentioned now we have this, this systemic breakdown, but we also have what Zbigniew Brzezinski pointed out would be the only threat to the New World Order that he had been you know, championing for his whole life since he was a, a, a student under um, William, William Yandel Elliott, who ran the, the Rhodes Scholar who managed the Chatham House of Harvard and taught Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew. So he traded the, the next generation of sociopathic managerial elite who would go on to play a very important role in converting the world from being a pro authentically industrial oriented society into becoming the type of basket case world that we now were born into. And Zbigniew made a point, you know, he was, he was, he's dead now. He was a more rigorous, like people like him, Kissinger were more rigorously minded than the current batch of wannabe grand strategists. Um, cause that's the way oligarchs work. They make systems that also stupidify their own, their own retainers <laughs> over time, which, which, uh, should be one of many proofs that the oligarchical system is itself, um, not lawful. It's, it's, it's an unlawful, but what did Zbigniew say? Zbigniew said that the only possible threat to this new world order that we've just ushered in with the collapse of the Soviet union would be a potential emergence of a collude of a, of an alliance between Russia, China, and Iran. In, and he was saying this in 1997. Now, in 1998, you had uh, Joe Biden come out with his ridiculous response to uh, to this view after he returned from Moscow saying, you know, one of my and there's a pre press conference people can watch him didn't age well online saying uh, on YouTube saying, you know, uh, my, my Russian counterpart said, if you don't treat us better um, because, you know, the, basically the CIA were running Russia in the 1970s, uh, the 1990s under perestroika. Right. It was you had the CIA with their office inside of the Russian, you know, the, the Russian defense ministry controlling the Russian uh, nuclear arsenal. Um, you had the IMF, the World Bank, overseeing the creation and privatization of a new, of everything that was state-owned under a new Western-directed uh, puppet class of oligarchs who would be always loyal as fifth columnists to Western powers. And so one of the, the leading officials inside of uh, the Russian establishment was telling Biden, hey, look, you, you have to change your approach here or else we might uh, turn towards an alliance with Iran and China. Biden re recounts this story 
uh, to the press on his return and chuckles saying, yeah, good luck with that was my answer. <laughs> no. um, he should have been paying more attention to what Brzezinski was actually saying because while then it was true that Russia and China were very weak, um, Russia was, was taken down completely. China was still super poor. Um, Iran, very weak, still suffering under massive sanctions. They hadn't developed an, a, a sovereign supply chain at that point yet. It was still a lot, lot more, more mushy. Um, the target was on their head for regime change after Iraq and Syria, just like, uh, Pearl and Wolfowitz and all pointed out with the clean break doctrine. Despite that, Today's configuration of these civilizational states is very different from what it was in 1997-98. So now we actually have an Iran that's been able to build up a, a sovereign industrial capability with indigenous uh, production systems, agro-industrial, scientific, despite all of the sabotage from the outside, the, the murder of hundreds of their, their scientists, of their political figures, of their military figures like Suleimani, but many more. Uh, despite all of that sabotage, cyber war, cyber attacks, threats of bombing, all of this stuff, they've been able to build up a very, very powerful economy with the fourth most powerful um, army uh, in the world. Um, you have military contracts and alliances with um, security security uh, pacts with China and with Russia. You have uh, a, a, an idea, a concept that involves co-opting or at least influencing these different uh, policies like the fourth industrial revolution towards a pro abundance creation orientation of production uh, of goods, free energy instead of creating scarcity. So that's something measurable that we could see with things like the belt and road initiative. We could measure the increase of longevity, the increase of the productive powers of labor of the, of the people living within countries working on infrastructure projects tied to the belt and road. We could look at the increased rates of educational access, trade schools, skill sets, and also the resistance, effective resistance by Russia and especially by China, but others uh, as well, uh, to the woke ideology, the restoration of pol policies that ban uh, child addiction to video games, that ban the uh, the effeminization of, of masculinity in popular culture and in music, the... Um, policies culturally that promote stories in film and shows that encourage moral values, which I watch a lot of Chinese TV and a lot of Chinese movies, as well as Russian TV and movies. The, the Chinese are more advanced on this, where they can make high quality, entertaining um, film and, and uh, popular culture, but that actually has moral values contained within it, which is the opposite of anything you get in the Anglosphere Netflix a programming, which is all based on death worship, apocalyptic scenarios, um, things that that bring about basically a despair, a general sense of nihilism and despair in our entertainment. Very different. We used to have moral entertainment with Frank Capra and uh, John Frankenheimer in the '60s that would that carried stories that would make people better as well as entertain. We lost that as the Satanists took over our Hollywood and our Netflix was created with Edward Bernays's grandson. Right, founding Netflix and running as its CEO, currently Netflix. That's that's very different. So you could see on a variety of levels what the Belt and Road Initiative and this collusion of different civilizational states representing dif different um, ancient ancient civilizations, Christian, Muslim, uh, Confucian, Buddhist, are all converging with a sense of uh, 
win-win. It's been overstated, but really it is. It's 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 a win-win orientation that we can do things in a way that allows everybody to benefit to varying degrees from economic and security policies, which is why you have things like the peace process in Yemen, which the 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 Anglo-American oligarchs never wanted. They always worked to put more uh, fuel on the fires of the war in uh, from Saudi Arabia versus Yemen, the restoration of diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the restoration of ties between Syria and the entire Arab Arabic world was made possible by the, the brilliant uh, diplomatic maneuvering and also the offering of real economic incentives for these different nations of the Middle East, Southwest Asia, as well as of Africa, to build and work together on and, and to make it more prosperous to not continue with Anglo-American divide to conquer games, which was also what the normalization of Israel was with its neighbors around the Abraham Accords, around which is why Kissinger was fired by Trump at the very end in 2020 was because Kissinger was always for, when he said in 2012 uh, to the Jerusalem Post, in 10 years, Israel will no longer exist. Very few people understood what Kissinger understood. Kissinger was not talking about like, oh, because in 10 years, there will be a greater Israel that will live forever. No, that's what a lot of people um, have have chosen to interpret those words as. No, he understood, just like those anti-Semitic pro-Nazi fascists like Milner and, uh, and Lloyd George and Arthur Balfour, who created Israel in the first place to convince the international Jews to go into this one little region that could be used, exploited, while it served the interests of the empire during the Cold War, but then burnt off the map to finally erase what they always wanted to erase, which was the Jews. They hate the Jews. That's what Kissinger is, is talking about. As a Jew, he doesn't care. He's a Satanist. But but despite that, he was talking about creating a situation whereby a global conflagration would happen and finally Israel won't exist. So this is the sort of thing that's been created. And, and Kissinger was in opposition to the Abraham Accords for that reason. Because when you look at it originally, the Abraham Accords was not just simply a restoration, recognition of Palestine as an independent country, the restoration of pre-1967 borders. It was that, but it was also, as Trump pointed out back then, um, starting in 2019, based on large-scale infrastructure development that would benefit both the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Israelis, uh, sorry, the, the Palestinians and the, the Israelis together, with the assistance of the United States, which Kissinger and his ilk always opposed. So that's where it becomes very painful because up until a, a month ago, not even, um, we were moving very close to creating the most stable situation that we had seen in centuries in the Middle East around all Egypt and Saudi Arabia and UAE and Jordan and, and many other countries were finally for the first time recognizing Israel so that they could create a, a business climate of stability that would permit for Belt and Road Initiative style projects to begin to, to be built in that area because you can't convince investors to build big, to invest in like five, 10 year infrastructure projects if the region that they're investing in is on fire. You need to stabilize it. So that came close, really close. And the Northwest Transportation Corridor goes, cuts, goes straight from the Arctic into Russia all the way down through Georgia into Armenia, Azerbaijan, down into Iran and into, into India. That's, again, threatened by the types of destabilization that would spill over easily beyond this little micro region, especially if you get an attack on Iran, which is what Lindsey Graham, the you know the Eisen, SS Eisenhower and battle, battle fleet are all now in there with the Gerald Ford uh, battle fleet with nuclear uh, capable missiles, submarines all in the Mediterranean off the coast threatening Iran, which is what they've always wanted going back to the clean break doctrine 
was bomb Iran. That's the that's the that's the key one. Iran has nothing to do with terrorism. If you actually look at it, they they do supply two hundred million dollars a year to Hamas, but Hamas is the elected government of the people living in Israel. So uh, sorry, in 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 Palestine, in Gaza. So if Hamas is the elected government, they administer the aid. The they'd been they'd been administering the uh, medical aid, the other forms of things that people living, the 2 million plus people living there have required just to survive under apartheid conditions. So that money, which is relatively negligible as far as like, you know, the type of dollars we're talking about is negligible. Iran doesn't make the policy for Hamas. For that, you have to look much closer to Qatar, to um, Anglo-American intelligence, which again, with the with the, the Zionist, Zionist freaks created Hamas in the first intifada in the first place to offset and undo the good that was being created by Yasser Arafat and the PLO. That's why they created it. That's why they always incubated it, cultivated it, and use it just like they've used ISIS and Al-Qaeda that they also created in the 1970s and the 80s that in order to fight a proxy war with, with Russia in, the, in, the, in Afghanistan. That's where Al-Qaeda came from. That's why it's still being protected and used and sometimes called freedom fighters in Syria or in, in Libya or in Iraq to undermine nations we don't like because those nations are otherwise acting a little bit too independently. So I'm saying all of this uh, as a bit of a rant, and I apologize for that, but I, I get riled up. I know you do too. Uh, but I really want to just set the stage here for ultimately a UFO film. Oh, yeah. This is uh, part of the mythos for the surfs. Uh, let me bring this up. Uh, how many minutes do you want us to play, man? This is this is a new documentary you put out. Why don't you, why don't you tell the people a little bit about this, Matt? Yes. So as I as I was mentioning, part of what this um, part of this whole grand strategy, and it's and it's a very lame grand strategy, but this desire to kick over the the, the chessboard at this moment um, has a lot to do with the desire to create a new great narrative, a new set of sacred stories. People are wondering. I've noticed a lot of people are wondering, I, you know, why is it that this thing that has been kept secret in government for so long, um, which is UFOs, is all of a sudden every there seem to be powerful forces that wants to think about UFOs. So, and we have all sorts of things. We got like mummified UFOs being found apparently in Peru that follow exactly the Indiana Jones four script to the T from Steven Spielberg and Lucas. Um, same story, right? We have all of these things that have been there in the sci-fi world in Hollywood that are all of a sudden we're being told this is like reality, actually. And, and in from my analysis, uh, we this is the basis of the creation of a new set of uh, an, an initiation process of the world as a whole into what is desired as a new set of religious institutions centered around drug alien cults that redefine what is Christianity, what is Islam, what is Judaism, what is everything around aliens, going back to a, a, a revision of our stories of the ancient past, pyramids, you name it. And they've been building this for a long time. This is a multi-generational project, and it's much bigger than I realized. So my wife and I, with Jason Dollar, our filmmaker friend, <coughs> at first we were going to make this as one film, then we realized it's too big. So we had to make it a series. And the series... Was, we were having trouble telling the story because it's every there's so many moving parts, right? That all have to sort of be told in a coherent way, going back to pre World War II, even a little bit into the 19th century. And we're like, it's very difficult to tell the story and 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 help people really appreciate what's going on. So we decided, okay, we'll make it eight parts, eight 20 to 30 minute episodes. The first episode is going to be 30 minutes. 
And the first one, uh, Cynthia wrote, I, I, cause she's done the most work on the deeper ancient occult mystery religions, which is very, very much connected to what's going on now in a way that I don't, I didn't fully appreciate until I, I, I asked her to write the script up as a draft and she did. And I was like, this is perfect. So we made this the first episode going back to pre-Christian, the pre-Christian Babylonian mystery religions. And, uh, and then we take it through the revival of these mystery religions and these occult sects after Christianity, especially into the, the 18th and 19th centuries. And then we end it at the beginning of the 20th century with the introduction of H.G. Wells. That's the, that's, that's the whole guideline of the first episode that'll be out tomorrow or either tonight or tomorrow on CanadianPatriot.org. I'll say, let's watch the first part just to give people a, a taste of it to wet your, to get people to salivate over, over the general presentation. And, um, Skip my introduction. So I did a little three-minute introduction. You could maybe play the last few seconds of my introduction if you want. Let's just start it there. Start it there. That's fine. Yeah, right there. And then we'll end it after the first section's finished. As so many of us have been told, but merely went underground. This occult underground has continued throughout the centuries, operating in the shadows, orchestrating wars, coups, assassinations, and cultural warfare, leading up to the British Empire's Hellfire Club and the Society for Psychical Research of the 18th and 19th centuries. By establishing a direct connection between the ancient world and the modern era's imperial intrigues tied to such things as Rosicrucianism, Kabbalism, Theosophy, and Freemasonic cults, it will become clear how the rebranding of ancient pagan priesthoods has unfolded into our modern times. Although it may not seem obvious at first, this exercise will be most important to understand how the UFO mythos emerged in the 20th century and the true purpose behind the revival of ancient pagan cults under a great reset today. Can you raise the volume? Yes. Why has shadowed human history since the first sharp realization of our own mortality? This question has never failed to spark a search for understanding, which in turn has left in its wake various myths, rites, and representations of the divine. According to the ancient writings of Hesiod in his Theogony, in the beginning there existed only chaos. Once arose Gaia and Eros, then Gaia bore a being equal to herself, able to cover her entirely, starry Uranus. Gaia, with Uranus as her partner, would give birth to the twelve titans, 
the first generation of Titans, six male and six female. Of these, Kronos partnered with his older sister Rhea, who then bore the first generation of Olympians, Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera. As the story is told by Hesiod, Uranus hated his children, the Twelve Titans, and Gaia asked that her children rebel. Kronos is the only one to answer her call, and Uranus, drunken to penetrate the body of the earth, was castrated by Kronos with a sickle. From the blood that flowed upon Gaia, there came into the world the three Irines, goddesses of vengeance, the giants, and the nymphs of ash trees. From the sexual organs of Uranus thrown into the sea, Aphrodite was born. This archaic myth represents the violent separation between heaven and earth. It is a myth that has been widely disseminated and documented in various cultures, including Egypt and India. In all likelihood, Hesiod knew these oriental traditions. His theogony centered around the conflict between the divine generations and the struggle for universal sovereignty. Such origin myths, also known as creation myths, would serve as the foundation for the earliest cults. A cult, strictly speaking, is a particular system of religious worship, especially with reference to its rites and ceremonies. Etymologically, the word cult comes from the root of the word culture, representing the core system of beliefs and activities at the basis of a culture. Thus, every human being belongs to a cult in its most general sense, because everyone belongs to a culture. The literal and traditional meaning of the word cult is derived from the Latin cultus, meaning care or adoration. Apollo, also known as the god of the sun and of the light, was also god of archery, music, dance, truth and prophecy, healing and disease, poetry and more. The cult of Delphi was the most prominent and influential cult in ancient Greece and had its roots in the cult of Marduk based in Babylon and the cult of Horus based in Egypt. In the cult of Delphi, a priestess, who it was said was intoxicated by the gas vapors of the chasm, would be the intermediary messenger who would deliver the words of the gods in indecipherable gibberish, to which the priests of Delphi would translate for those asking for prophecy. It is said that no large political decision was ever made in Greece, most notably in Athens and Sparta, without first consulting the oracle at Delphi. In Egypt, it was the pharaoh who acted as the obligatory intermediary between the gods and humans. The hierarchical priesthood overseeing the Egyptian cult of the pharaoh's pantheon of gods, as well as the rites of initiation, was at the heart of the growth of many of the secret societies across thousands of years. The Egyptian god equivalent to Apollo was Horus. Horus, the god of kingship, healing, protection, and the sun and sky, represented the kingship itself and was seen as a protector of the pharaoh. In Babylon, the Apollo equivalent is Marduk, whose name means calf of the sun, and thus is the son of the sun. Like the cult of Apollo at Delphi and the cult of Horus in Egypt, no king of Babylon would decide on making war or peace without first consulting the oracle of the Marduk priesthood. 
It is thought that the temples of Apollo, Horus, and Marduk were linked under a common network, and thus controlled all intelligence and decisions for war and peace between these nodes. The priests effectively operated above all else, with no specific loyalty towards the kings they were advising and the welfare of their people. These mystery cults or mystery religions would continue to play a central role within Rome, Byzantium, and later empires, and continue in their influences to this day. The mystery cults take the form of three main branches, the Mithraic, the Orphic Apollonian, and the Dionysian mysteries. Thus, the mystery cults, which reserved their secret knowledge for initiates who would seek wisdom and power through esoteric practices and rituals, generally interpreted their scriptures allegorically to reveal so-called hidden spiritual truths that were usually known only to the higher-ranking initiates of the religion. This is what has made up the hidden hand behind the political decisions and spiritual beliefs of the day for millennia. All right, that's a good spot. That was sick, man. <laughs> that was awesome. My God, the production value is tremendous. Yeah, Jason Jason Dahl is a uh, is brilliant. He's he's helped us turn a lot of our work into into films uh, over the last year, and uh, just super happy that we uh, that we found this this talent who's wow. based up in the Yukon. So holy cow! Yeah, that's amazing, man, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, so when, yeah, is this, it, when is this masterpiece coming out? It's looking like we'll get done. Uh, we'll have it released by tonight. So. Yeah. Probably before nine ten o'clock, I'm aiming for having this up on the CanadianPatriot.org website and the uh, yeah. RisingTideFoundation.net. Um, so that's the thing. As long as we don't have any other glitches in the in the final uh, phase of cleaning up the the sound quality a little bit, yeah. should be fine. So tonight, beautiful. Looking forward yeah. to it. Matthew Eret, the man, the myth, the brain trust himself, brother. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this amazing. Again, it's it's always. You know, when Matthew comes on, it's time to go to school. Grab your notebooks, get your thinking caps on because we're about to go deep. And I want to thank you for every single time, man, just enlightening the audience, educating the audience, opening up their minds, letting them see that the world is a lot more multifaceted and that we are indeed living in the multipolar reality. Oh, man, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you for doing this and creating this platform and, and increasing the standards of intelligence. Uh, they're so needed in the United States right now. So, oh, God. You know. Yeah. One mind at a time, brother. One mind Amen. at a time. You know, it all starts with, uh, with the listeners here. So, folks, again, check out Matthew's work over at CanadianPatriot.org. CanadianPatriot.org. RisingTideFoundation.net. RisingTideFoundation.net. Please. Get his books, The Symphony of the Two Americas, Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, Volume 4. I'm not just a promoter of Matthew Eret. I'm a consumer of Matthew <laughs> Eret's works, and I have his books right in my library. Love them, cherish them. They're a magnum opus of understanding the geopolitical, the geostrategic play-by-play -play that has been occurring, and that has been on us and playing us for the last 200 years or so. So once again, Matthew, thank you so much, folks. Go check them out. Again, again, go to the website, CanadianPage.org, RisingTideFoundation.net. The movie will be there. So don't miss it. 
With that being said, we're over now.